Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1975 movie, The Man Who Would Be King. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this was a movie, as I said last week, that not only had I not seen, I had not heard of it. I had no knowledge at all going into going into it, what this was going to be about. So, um, yeah, so it was it was that was actually really fun to just sort of turn on a movie and say, okay, I'm this is what I'm watching. And I didn't do any reading or research ahead of time. I just sort of hit play and Mm -hmm. uh, and let the movie let the movie play out. So (laughs) that's my history with this film. Uh, What is your history with this film? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, again, it's probably one of those films, Sam, that I must have picked up on in the '80s after things were available in VHS. Um, I don't remember why, why or how I heard about it. Maybe because it was a Sean Connery film. That's probably the most likely uh, connection. Uh, and I can't remember if I had um, read the Kipling short story or not before or after seeing the film. So, yeah, I mean it. It struck me, and this is just because I had not heard of it, that this film seems like it's like lost to time. I've never heard anybody mention this mention this movie before, so uh, so it was really interesting. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more uh, later. I, I have some uh, some information about 1975 uh, in the movies because it's a pretty amazing year uh, for movies. Um, so it's it's uh, it's no it's no uh, surprise that a movie like this you know, in a, in a year that's so stacked with movies that that's, that this is one that maybe doesn't rise to people's consciousness, um, right away. Uh, what is your history with Sean Connery? I mean, you picked this because of the passing of, of Sean Connery last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sort of curious, you know, what is, what is your experience with him? What is your history with him? Well, I think like a lot of people, you know, Sean Connery will always be the quintessential 007. So certainly my history with Sean Connery is, is history of the 007 films. But also, curiously enough, um, people sometimes forget that before 007, he was in um, a film, a Disney film called Darby O'Gill and the Little People uh, from, I'm believing, 59 or 1960, one of those right around in there. So I would have seen it um, as a kid, not when it first came out, but probably in one of its re-releases. And I remember watching it with my kid, with my children. And uh, it's just, it's just, you know, all of a sudden he shows up. You're like, hey, that's 007, but it's Sean Connery before he was discovered. So to me, he's always been, he's always been that guy that was in Darby O'Gill and, and, and the Little People. Um, and then, you know, subsequently, he's in another really fine later film in his career that also sometimes gets forgotten called Finding Forrester. Uh, which is a really good film about a teacher mentor relationship. Um, but I, you know, for me, it's and I think I think that one of the things that he did deliberately in his career was he grew beyond 007. He was very deliberate about not getting stuck in that role, although he reprised it a couple of times. So one of the things I'm impressed about with Connery is I think he's an actor of great range, and he's certainly a lot of fun in the uh, when he shows up as Harrison Ford's father uh, in the Indiana Jones uh, franchise. Well, and I would say that is that is to me the iconic. Uh, Sean Connery role. I realize it's a small role uh, in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but that movie came out in '89, so I was 12 years old. So I hadn't uh, I hadn't seen James Bond movies. Uh, so to me, that's who he was uh, was Indiana Jones's dad, and I feel like that role bears some relationship to this role a little bit, or that movie bears some relationship to this movie. So maybe we can circle back to that. Uh, and then I also think of Sean Connery as sort of old Sean Connery. So I think about a movie like Finding Forrester, you know, it's like, you know, I think about him as, as an, as an older actor. Um, are you, so you mentioned James Bond, are you a James Bond fan? I mean, are you like, 
Is that a franchise that interests you? Is that something? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think to be a James Bond fan, you have to be a completist. Uh, And I will confess, I have never watched any of the Roger Moore uh, Bond films. Um, I don't think I've seen any of the Timothy Dalton ones. I saw Pierce Brosnan's. Um, I am a fan of the Daniel Craig Bond, but I think that has as much to do with Daniel Craig as it has to do with the fact that it's Bond. So... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a big fan, but okay, I, I'm less of a fan than you are. Uh, I, like, I have, I have tried, I've tried the Daniel Craig ones, and they're fine. Like, those are okay. Yeah. Um, I have no interest in the in the earlier ones. I mean, I've seen them. You know, when they come on TV on cable, I've fired them up, saying, "Oh, people seem to like these." And I get partway in, and I'm just like, I'm just not interested. There's something about it that 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 doesn't interest me. Um, that much. I mean, I would say my favorite Daniel Craig James Bond movie is probably Munich because it's not a James Bond movie, but it's you know he's playing this uh, Mossad agent, and I'm like, yeah, I'm into that. I really like that. So I would rather watch Munich than uh, you know uh, Skyfall or something like that. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm curious. I usually don't ask this question at the top, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go to this right away. Um, why did you pick this film as as your Sean Connery film for us to watch? I, well, I picked it for a couple of reasons. Um, one is because, as you pointed out, Sam, I think it's a film that's been kind of forgotten or neglected. Um, so I picked it for that reason. I, I picked it because I am more interested in this film than I am in any of the James Bond films. Uh, and I haven't seen um, I haven't seen the film for which he won the, the Academy Award, the Brian De Palma film, uh, the one about Elliot Ness. Uh, the Untouchables. Yeah, The Untouchables. I haven't seen that. Uh, plus, I have an aversion to Brian De Palma that I won't get into right now. Um, but I, but I also thought it was a nice way to kind of bookend John Huston's career because we had watched Treasure of Sierra Madre. So that, that, that was probably my overwhelming idea that this kind of paired, you know, sense with Sierra Madre. Um, so as I was, as I was watching this movie and again, had no concept of what it was going to be about, um, there were a, a couple of things that that jumped out at me. I was thinking, you know, as it started, we're in India in the 19th you know, Victorian India, uh, Victorian era India. Um, we are, it's made in 1975. And I just, I just had this like overwhelming fear about cultural insensitivity. Like, okay, what, what is this? What are we going to be doing here? I got real nervous uh, yeah, starting yeah. to watch this. Um, and uh did you read the uh, the Pauline Kael essay on this? No, I, I didn't. Okay, um, so I mean, she she was she. I, my take on it was that she liked the film but didn't think it was great, which is you know. Uh, um, but she actually thought he did a uh, in in nineteen seventy five terms did a good job of sort of trying to walk that line um, of not being not falling into the traps of cultural insensitivity that we would have seen, you know, maybe in in decades earlier in a movie about, you know, British imperialism in India in terms of how the, um, how the Indian people and the people of Kafiristan are, are, are depicted. Um, so I'm wondering how you feel about that and, and how, do, how does this to you read in, in 2020? I mean, did you have well, any of those feelings as, as the, you fired this movie up? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's, that's an interesting question, Sam, because there are other older movies that I actually am avoiding these days because I know that it's just going to really uh, bother me, but I thought they, I thought they did a, a reasonable job. Um, I mean, considering the fact that, I mean, Kipling can be a hard read, 
just just to go back and read Kipling because uh, the, the the racist attitudes, even though for his time Kipling was considered fairly enlightened. Um, you know, I th I think one of the things that they did a good job with uh, in terms of the character was Billy Fish. Um, although the actor himself, Saeed Joffrey, was evidently not treated particularly well on the set. Uh, but in terms of the of the presentation of, of his character, uh, I thought they had managed to avoid the kind of um, uh, the kind of stereotyping that you might often get with a character like that. And, you know, they didn't, as as these films often might do, they didn't play up, you know, the the, the savagery of the, of the native populace. In fact, I think one of the really interesting things that they did, which I do not think was in the, in, in the story, although I may be forgetting, is the idea of Polo with the head of the opponent, which which is a nice combination of, oh, oh Polo, this very civilized, Maybe you call it civilized, but it's a it's a ultimate British game, right? Mm -hmm. It's uh, definitely a high class, high status game, high, right? That, that's about as Tony as you can get, right? And they're doing that with the skull of, of, of an enemy, and I think what it ends up being is both a commentary on the native culture, but also a commentary on the colonial culture. So there's a kind of a of a level, so to speak, a leveling of the playing field. So I thought for '75. You know, in compared to other films in this genre, I think it did it did a decent job. Um, another, uh, I will say, so I'll say that that was my feelings as this movie started. Um, as I got to the end, my my initial takeaway is I really like I had a good time watching this movie. This was this was like I really enjoyed it, um, <laughs> and it, it. So I was reading uh, contemporary reviews of it, uh, and Roger Ebert's review ends this way. It, it kind of sums up. To a certain degree, my um, my initial feelings as the movie ended when, when I uh, I got really pulled into this and and as a piece of entertainment, I found it very entertaining. He said uh, the movie proceeds with impossible coincidences, untold riches, romances and betrayals, and heroic last words, and best of all, some genuinely witty scenes between Connery and Kane. And when it's over, we haven't learned a single thing worth knowing. And there's not even a moral to speak of, but we had fun. Um, and there's a degree to which, like, I don't necessarily agree with all of that, but like, I, I wasn't excited when I, like, when so when I when I went onto Amazon to to rent the movie and I saw the the poster art, I was that it didn't excite me, and I thought, okay, Kipling, uh, you know, 19th century Victorian era India, like, it didn't it didn't like press any of the buttons that were going to excite me, and like, I really I really was. Um, found the story entertaining which i think is you know uh is something that's every once in a while important in a movie to feel like that was a that was a an enjoyable thing so it reminded me in that way of um like i said i think there's some connections here it reminded me of like an indiana jones movie like it's a it's an adventure epic without being too much of an action movie my, my fear was also that this was going to be uh, I have an aversion to like too much actiony movies, like uh, big battle scenes and things like that tend to wear on me. And mm -hmm. uh, but this is this is more about the the especially the first half of the movie is more about this adventure than it is about action. And I was like, I was really pulled in by that. Well, you know, it's it's funny that Ebert's review and uh, Vincent Camby, who was reviewing for the Times at the New York Times at the same time, they they both kind of took that same approach to the film, which is this is really great fun. Um, Ebert talks about the fact that he thinks that a lot of films in the 60s and early 70s kind of got weighed down with messages, and this is an escapist. And I I think that's underselling the picture. I, I, I think that the film does, to me, one of the reasons why it's a great, a, great, a good, maybe even a great film, 
is that it actually manages to be fun on one at one level, but to be very serious at another level. So I'm going to counter now. I know that D.H. Lawrence tells us to trust the tale and not the teller. Um, but I'm going to counter what Ebert said about it with what um, John Houston himself said about it. Uh, and this comes out of something Houston, Houston is saying this about the Kipling story, but he's using that as a basis for for the film. He says um, the story has a trajectory. There's a wideness and handsomeness to it, and of the men, it echoes some dream that I think is in all our hearts, even as we grow older. That continual longing for the great adventure. They confirm something that is in our yearning souls, and there is a bravery there, that kind of courage that we aspire to, and an affirmation that if you are brave enough, the gods will be with you. If you dare enough, you will be aided and abetted. And if you are brought up short, why? It's because once you attain the place you seek, there is the danger of becoming high and mighty, of falling victim to the disease of power that most of us who live in a rarefied atmosphere are assailed with. Once you begin to believe that you yourself are indeed the supreme being, issuing the orders and making all the decisions. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, it is a story of hubris, um, and it is a story that I think is a, is a very um, canny critique, analysis and critique of colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it manages to, to be that while also being a great adventurer at the same time. Yeah, I think it's in part because, I mean, if, if you're, you get that if you listen to what Connery uh, I guess uh, Danny says, like once he's already, you know, he, when he's starting to buy into being Sikander the second, you know, if if you if you sort of take him at face value in terms of like um, he's starting to buy into his own the own myth his own myth around him, and what Houston doesn't overplay that though. There's not a lot of. Um, long pensive scenes of him wrestling with that but like but he says it right and 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 i think and i think you know thinking of that and then thinking of this relationship with um with peachy and how peachy is viewing what's happening in very uh, you know in in very different ways um so i think you're right you know I, I think that's uh but but it doesn't dwell on it doesn't dwell on that so much so i think it is easy to to miss that uh in the larger scope of what's happening well, in, in that sense, I think it is a quintessential Hollywood film. It's not. It's not an art film. It's not a. It's not a, cer a deliberately cerebral film. But I think that the best of Hollywood films are films that do engage you at, at a couple of different levels. Um, I think the most important scene in the film, and the most important exchange in the film, for, for that captures both the film as as an adventure and the film as a commentary, is when they are first. Uh, when the, the re, when the response is that they are gods, and Peachy says, not gods, Englishmen, which is the next best thing. <laughs> and then Daniel says, bringing enlightenment to the darker regions of the, of the earth. Um, and, you know, that is, that is the quintessential, you know, the phrase that Kipling coined, right? The white man's burden. Uh, the idea that, you know, colonization is actually a noble uh, enterprise. Uh, and of course, when when Daniel says that, obviously there's a certain amount of um, irony behind it. You know, it's 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 you know he's saying it because it's kind of a it's just one of those bromides that Englishmen repeat. But at the same time, there's this notion that he actually might might believe it, and it may be one of the reasons why he actually stays because he becomes, uh, in a sense, um, uh, entranced by his own his own fiction. But there's also a connection here to. Um, to one of Kipling's contemporaries, one of his admiring contemporaries, uh, Conrad. And Conrad says in, in Heart of Darkness, when he talks about 
uh, colonialism, he says the conquest of the earth, which mostly means taking away from it those who have a different complexion or slightly flatter noses than ourselves, is not a pretty thing when you look into it too much. What redeems it is the idea only, an idea at the back of it, not a sentimental pretense, but an idea, an unselfish belief in the idea. And so I think, you know, what Kipling and Houston are both doing is kind of examining that. Is, is there really an idea behind this? And of course, in the case of uh, Daniel and Peachy, the only idea is initially, you know, we want to be rich. Right, right. No, and, and so I also loved this as kind of a... Um a con man movie too, you know, and I'm, I'm a sucker for, for, for con man movies. I love a movie like the sting. I really, I, I really, I, I'm into that. And then, and this is the, like the con man movie where the con starts to believe his own con, right. Or, the, or the, the dog catches the car. And then it's like, like, cause I didn't know again, not knowing where this story was going. I didn't know if this was going to be a story of them getting there and learning something about these people. I didn't know if it was going to be a story about them. Like, constantly trying to you know use the 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 powers they think they have and it constantly falling apart and it turns out it's a story where their their plan works and it kind of works too well mm -hmm. you know and it's like okay and then it's this matter of well now that we're here and we've essentially quicker than we thought achieved every end and achieved more than we than we could have um do we aim for more or do we take the money and run <laughs> You know, and that, and that, you know, and and so, and I, I really thought that was interesting because uh, that's I didn't expect it that to be the story. I didn't expect as I mean, because there's really only I think only one battle that we see, and mm. then it, and then it's pretty quickly, you know, like the legend around him starts to form, and and people are just surrendering to them rather than, um, uh, you know, rather than fighting, and then you see this seduction of the. Uh, <clears throat> The, both the seduction of the power and the feeling of, you know, that, that he maybe really thinks he is bringing enlightenment, bringing a kind of enlightenment. I mean, he's the one who's like, we're not going to behead our enemies. We're going to, so he has, he's trying to bring a different sense of justice. I mean, he's trying to be Solomon. He's trying to be all of these things. Um, and uh, again, I, there's weren't things that I was expecting. And I, and I thought those were really interesting. And it's yet, it's yet one more in, in among the many films we've watched Sam in which the, um, in which the male's baser uh, desires are part of his undoing. If, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if he hadn't given into the temptation to take a wife, um, and by the way, the as you probably noticed, the actress is actually Michael Caine's wife. Um, I saw that in the credits. I was like, her last name is Caine. I wonder. Yeah, and, and that was completely that was serendipitous. I mean, she was not. That was not the original plan. And they had another actress they were going to cast and. And I guess it was Houston was at dinner with Kane one night and Shakira was there and said, you know, she she actually looks like what we're going for. And so, yeah, so he agreed to do it. So a, little, yeah, a little subplot there. But, yeah, you know, so if he hadn't broken the broken the contract, you know, which is no no women, uh, women or wine, although there's plenty of song, uh, you know, maybe he could have, as you said, bracing it out a little bit longer. Um, speaking of Michael Caine, uh, I, 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 there's this theme here of me in my notes writing young fill-in-the-blank actor's name. I'm not, uh, again, because of the product of when I was born, Michael Caine has always been old to me. <laughs> you know, like like I think of him in like the Christopher Nolan movies and things like that. And it was really cool to see young Michael Caine. And I will say he is really menacing at times. Like like there is this, like he's the, he's the more comedic of the two he's he's very funny in this movie in, in certain parts 
but behind it, there is a kind of terrifying menace. I think I would be afraid of Michael Caine if I met him just for, you know, I'd like there. And I, and I loved, I thought that was really effective, especially when he's going to see Kipling at the beginning and end of the movie. He's kind of scary. Well, well the, the, the way in which he nonchalantly throws the, throws the guy off the train. It's yes. Like, no trouble doing that whatsoever. Yeah. There's something about Caine, you know, and he's got that, that distinctive Cockney accent that he never, he never tries to hide it, no matter what he's in, you know. And I think there's just something about that that makes him very attractive. He is, uh, since you've mentioned his his uh, this being the younger Michael Caine, this is still almost 20 years into his career. Um, he's actually one of only uh, five actors to be nominated for the Academy Award in five decades. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and the other four, in case you're curious, are Lawrence Olivier, Paul Newman, Jack Nicholson, and Robert De Niro. Um, yeah, so he's had a long and uh, and very varied career indeed. I mean, this I will say one of my takeaways is this makes me want to go like explore Michael Caine's career a little more. Uh, so, do you have are there are there other uh, Michael Caine movies where where uh, especially kind of earlier Michael Caine movies that that you'd recommend? Well, you know, I, I, I'll recommend a couple that I actually haven't seen, to be frank. Um, but I think that one that is 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 another film in this genre would be Zulu. From 1964, uh, and then his first um, Academy Award was for Alfie, uh, which is 1966, and so that was sort of the first iteration of Michael Caine, kind of a little bit of a playboy character. Uh, he's in a very good film that was remade. Uh, the original was 1969, The Italian Job. Uh, I highly recommend that. It's a it's a, a bank uh, it's a heist it's a robbery. Movie, right? Yeah, it's a bank heist film, and it was I forget who remade it. The remake wasn't bad, but I think the original, in most cases, I think the original is actually better. Um, another, one of his other big 70s roles was a Private Eye, uh, Get Carter, uh, in, in 1971. So those are some of the earlier ones. Um, he got One of his other Academy Awards is for a later film, uh, um, Hen and Her Sisters, the mm -hmm. uh, Woody Allen film. Yeah, but I go back, I do get Alfie, because I've often wanted to see Alfie. And that's where the uh, 1960s hit, hit song, What's It All About? What's It, What's it All About, Alfie? That was the hmm. theme song for film. So, um, I also <laughs> was interesting seeing Christopher Plummer in this movie. Like, oh. I, it was one of those where because he's behind that big mustache, like I didn't recognize him. So, I, when I got to the credits, I was like, "Oh, that's who that was." Uh, I, I mean, he he's maybe overqualified to play that small <laughs> of a role in this, but but it, I, I I liked him in it. But I, th I think that's what makes it so great. I think when you put a really great actor in a small role, it's amazing. I mean, I think it's amazing what he did with it. You know how, how little there was of him in the film. I think it was there was really. I think it was a brilliant casting stroke and and also a brilliant um, structural stroke uh, on Houston's part to have him there at the beginning and, and the end. Um, can we talk a little bit about the ending of yeah. uh, the ending of the movie? <laughs> sure. I mean, so there's this framing device around it of um, of Peachy. We see. I mean, we, we began at the ending of the movie where Peachy is going back to Kipling's office right, and then right. we, we, and then he tells this tale and then we get Peachy, then we cut back to that at the end and Peachy leaves a little gift for, uh, for Kipling. Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on the ending? And that's, it's and a then, little different than the story. And that's, and that, and that's Houston's, um, that, that's what I mean by Houston's structural genius because the story proceeds chronologically. So it's Houston's idea at the beginning at the end. And then, and in a sense, I, I think it's a piece he probably borrowed from say something like Heart of Darkness, you know, where Conrad tells the stories that way. Well, the, the, uh, the, the, the ending is, um, there's a kind of a, of an echo of, of Gunga Din in the ending, which I will confess is another one of those classic films I haven't seen. 
another one of those classic colonial films. Um, but the the kind of that grinning skeleton with the ring of gold, right? It kind of so it kind of captures the idea that he's achieved he's achieved his goal, and yet he's mocked by his own by his own death. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the one of the interesting things about the production of this movie is that Houston wanted to make this for at least twenty years, if not more. I mean, this was a movie that he had planned out. So there are lots of um, kind of casting what ifs. There's lots of pairings. Um, so I'm just going to read some of these and I'm curious your thoughts on, on, on some of these pairings. Um, and then also I'll give you a heads up. I'm, I'm curious if you were going to cast this movie right now, is there a pairing of actors that you think would be, uh, would be interesting to put in these two roles? So originally he was thinking, uh, his plan was to do this with, uh, Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart, um, Gable in the, uh, Sean Connery role. Um, and then Bogart died and Gable died. Uh, then he thought about, uh, Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Uh, then the one that I, I like because I'm a big fan of the movie Beckett is Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, I think would be what uh, was an interesting one. Uh, and then uh, in the 70s, he was thinking about Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And then Newman convinced him that they really needed English actors to play this. And that's and he recommended Connery and Kane um, to uh, to Houston to do this. So do you have thoughts on any of those uh potential pairings um i have never been a clark gable fan um he's just not an actor i can warm up to and i i i i can i can see bogart being peachy that that would that that would work i mean think about the bogart from sierra madre uh a little less cowardly um but i i don't think that pairing would work um was it uh burton and o'toole o'toole yeah O'Toole works. Um, I mean, I'm sure yeah. O'Toole would play Peachy, right? And Burton yeah, would play. I'd make O'Toole as Daniel because O'Toole has done roles like that, like the um, oh, the one he did where he thought he was the son of God and, uh, of course, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, O'Toole is really, you know, physically, because he's a little bit like Kane, you think of him as Peachy. But I, I would see him much more as Daniel. Um, uh, I think the, the Redford-Newman pairing would be would be interesting um because they just have such part of it is they just have such great chemistry together so um so I, well, I, yeah i could go for any of those except Clark Gable. yeah yeah uh it, it's interesting because apparently uh connery and kane this was one of their favorite movie making experiences i think they enjoyed each, i mean i think their chemistry uh was off the screen as well it seems like yeah they're actually they were actually friends and so it made a lot of sense yeah yeah do you have, do you have, it doesn't need to be for, for this, for a remake of this movie, but do you have pairings of actors, uh, that you're, that, that you particularly like? And, um, if we're thinking about, you know, either that you've seen in movies or you're like, Oh, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, this pairing of actors, things like that. Well, I, you know, the, 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 the if I'm thinking about American actors, the one that comes immediately to mind as, as uh, Daniel for me would be George Clooney. Um, I'm trying to think of who I, who I would, who I would pair him with. Um, and that, the tough that, part, the tough part is that it seems like the natural, the natural Clooney pair that we've seen is Clooney and Pitt in things like the oceans movies, but I don't know about Pitt as PG, although you yeah, could get character actor Pitt, you know, I think, Pitt, I, think Pitt, I, I think Pitt as Peachy would, would kind of work. Um, the other actor I really like in a lot of different roles is um, because he has a capacity for disappearing into his roles is Michael Stolberg. Um, 
And the other, my, the other one I really like is Michael Shannon, although Michael Shannon maybe has a little bit too much of a sense of menace about him. The other one that might be interesting is, is Daniel, but I'm not quite sure who would be his peachy, would be Kenneth Branagh. Because hmm. uh, um, Branagh's good at grand eloquence. So. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, this movie also, it was fun to watch, having watched Treasure of Sierra Madre, because there are definitely sort of echoes of these uh these movies echo each other in a kind of way even the the big treasure at the end that just gets sort of swept away or thrown away you know as they're they're riding off with these these mules laden with uh laden with the treasure and um so do you i mean how do you think about these two as sort of pairings from the same uh from the same director well, I, th I think I think I think a lot of what Houston said and what drew him to this um, story to is that Houston is a, a guy who's consistently interested in people with big dreams or big ambitions, uh, and whether or not they're able to they're able to achieve those. Um, you think about um, African Queen, for example, uh, and Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, you know, out to sink the uh, the, the the Nazi boat. So I, I think he's really interested in people who pursue dreams, but who then there, there's almost inevitably a, um, a, a hubris or an irony that subverts the the, the, the dreams. Um, so I think that, in that sense, is that's really consistent with his with his career. Absolutely. I mean, there there's just this sense. I mean, when they when they hit the 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 treasure room and they're they're walking through it, and you know, you're just. It, you're just thinking like in the same way with Treasure of Sierra Madre, it's like if you could just get out of your own way right now, like you have achieved so much more than you dreamed in terms of, you know, like, and I think, you know, part of it is, is again, when you achieve the thing that you had set out to do, and sometimes when it comes easier than you think that you lose, tr you lose sight of your goal and you, and, and the, the, you know, the goal becomes bigger or, you know, your personal failings get in the way. I mean, Treasure Sierra Madre is another one of those where it's like, if you guys could just trust each other, like right. you could, you, you, you have achieved the, you have achieved the dream, but there, but it's like humanity's incapable of that, you know? Um, yeah. Um, so the, the last thing that I have in my notes is just to, to think about the year 1975. I just think this is one of those years. I always look when we, whenever we do one of these movies at kind of what the, uh, the Oscars were like that, that year, um, do you do you remember what is best picture of 1975? Or so it would have been the 76 Oscars, but 76. Uh, I mean, I, I, when I think about what came out in 75, I, I know that it was Jaws, and uh, I think Airport was 75. Um, but I don't remember. All right, I'll just I'll just I'll just give it to you. So uh, best here are your best picture nominees, and I'll end with the winner. So Jaws okay. was Jaws, Nashville, Barry oh. Lyndon. Dog Day Afternoon and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good Best Picture uh, grouping you know, of five. It, yeah, and I and I should have known it because we had that conversation about uh, about Nicholson getting the Best Actor uh, uh, that that particular year when we talked about seventy five. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty good year. So yeah, and then your uh, your Best Director <laughs> um, here was the nominees all? were Altman, Sidney Lumet, Kubrick, Fellini, and Milos Forman. <laughs> Again, a pretty good, a pretty good lineup. Spielberg must have gotten it right. Yep, yep, yeah. So Spielberg's not even nominated. He can't even make it into the top five there. Well, Na Nash Nashville is another one of those kind of breakthrough films that I think has sort of been forgotten. But that was a big film that year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, do you have other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, I wanted, I wanted to go back to your early question about the ending, Sam, because there is something else I wanted to say about that ending, um, and that is the uh, the fact that. 
Peachy shows up uh, with one eye. Uh, and there is that saying from the H.G. Wells story in the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So I think there's a, there may be a little bit of a visual pun on Houston's hmm. part. Uh, and by the way, I'm getting this from an article I read in, uh, in, a, in a journal. So uh, not, my, not my particular insight. But then there's a, lot of, there's a lot of motifs in the film involving eyesight. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's Daniel that goes snow blind. You have the eye from the Masonic symbol. You have uh, the priests walking around with their eyes closed. Uh, you, you have the, the, the woman that he wants to marry being described as an eyeful. You have the Kipling character continually rub, taking off his glasses and, and, and adjusting his eyesight. Mm -hmm. So the film is a lot about blindness and insight, what people see and what they, what they don't see. The other thing I wanted to point out is, is, we were, is I was thinking about fulfilling your dream in a sense, they're they're kind of undermined by uh, by chance in that they actually repudiate the idea that they're gods. But then when the arrow sticks in his belt, you know that's kind of the turning point, right? That he that he decides he's going to go along with the charade at that point. So there's a as there often is with the you know with tragic stories, there's an opportunity to turn back, but he doesn't he doesn't take it, mm -hmm. um, and everything just kind of falls apart after that. It's a little bit like Tracy Flick tearing down the posters in election. Uh, once, once she's done that, there's kind of no, there's no turning back from the path she's committed herself to. Right. Right. Well, this, I, like I said, I really, um, when I, when I saw the poster art, I was like, Oh, I don't know about this. And I saw the length of the movie. I, the movie kind of flew by. I really, uh, some of the criticisms of it were it was maybe too long. I really, I really liked this movie a lot. I really enjoyed it. So, uh, so I have to thank you a lot for recommending this because this is not, this is not one without this podcast. I would have never seen this movie. This is not something that would have crossed my path. Um, so, so I, I actually really liked it, and I really liked Connery, and I really liked Kane. Oh, one other thing I would say about about Kane and Connery. I talked about how, I mean, the, I realized the timeline and the the deaths don't work out, but like I could believe this as like, oh, this that that Danny Dravitt becomes Indiana Jones's father. Like, I, like I could believe that, right? Like he's an adventurer in this kind of way. In the same way. Uh, and again, the timeline doesn't work out, but in the uh, in the Dark Knight, Michael Caine plays Alfred, uh, Bruce Wayne's uh, butler, and you know, and he tells these stories about being in Burma and seeing these huge jewels, and like and like, and it's just like, oh, I could believe that Peachy becomes Alfred, <laughs> like like because there is so it's just like there is this kind of like cinematic continuity that like I've seen young Michael Caine as this kind of adventurer in, you know, Imperial Britain kind of stuff. And it's like, and then as old Michael Caine, he's telling this story, you know, and it's just like, oh yeah, th there, there's a, a nice little connection there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what do you have for us next week? Well, I'm going to complete our, uh, our, our trio of films on gender identity. Um, as you recall, that was a little series where I was trying to do, and I, we interrupted it for a couple of other films. So uh, I want to do 1992 Neil Jordan's film The Crying Game. Oh, um, that's uh, that was a film that made an incredible splash that year. And Neil Jordan is one of my favorite directors. We haven't looked at any Neil Jordan films lately yet. So, so that's what we're going to do. Um, oh, fantastic! I have seen that movie, but it probably was in 1992 or 1993, and I haven't uh, I haven't seen it since. So. Last time I saw it, and I'm really curious to see how it looks uh, so 30 years later. 
Oh, fantastic. Well, I am very excited to uh, to revisit that movie. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film, for having this conversation, for being with us on this journey. So um, one of the things that I did for listeners of the show, if you are if this is the first episode you're hearing of this show, this is our, I think our 32nd film that we've watched. So this weekend, um, I realized like, oh, you know, if somebody wanted to go back, it's actually kind of hard to go back in the podcast feed and because we, we have so many things in this feed. So um, this weekend I built a website uh, for, specifically for video store. So if you go to videostorepodcast.wordpress.com, um, all the all the episodes are there. All the films are organized by decade. So um, so if you're curious, if you want to sort of revisit this, or if you want to you know see which movies we've already talked about, um, I'll be updating that whenever I'm updating uh, the podcast feed as well. So um, so check that out, and we will be back next week to talk about the Crying Game in the video store.